I've decided to continue our study in 1 Samuel. There are a number of passages that would be helpful at a time like this, but in God's sovereignty, he has us studying in 1 Samuel right now, so I thought we would just continue. Amazingly, there's even an epidemic spreading through the cities in our text this morning. So we're just going to go ahead and keep going through 1 Samuel for now and look forward to that day when we can gather together again. Now let's pray as we begin. God our Father, Again, we rest in your sovereign goodness. Uh, we rest in your kindness to us. Uh, we know that nothing in this world can separate us from your love. Uh, so as we're gathered separately this morning, uh, help us to truly enjoy your word, remind us of your truth, convict our hearts, and help us to remember uh, that you are God, and that there's none like you, and that we can rest in you. Father, as I teach your word this morning, help me to teach in a way that is right and true, that is consistent with your word and with your will. And we ask that even though we cannot be together, that you would bless your people and that you would encourage us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel, if you would. 1 Samuel chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 1. If you happen to have a Bible, like one of our church Bibles, you can find that on page 228. 1 Samuel is about 20% of the way through your Bible. It is the ninth book of the Bible. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you have 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel follows it. If you get to 1 and 2 Kings, you've gone a little too far. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Uh, the chapter numbers are those bigger, bold numbers, and the smaller numbers that you see on your page are the verse numbers. Uh, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 5 this morning. We'll see three main points in our text. One, the Lord God rules over all gods. Two, the Lord God rules over all peoples. And three, do not be hard-hearted. So the Lord God rules over all gods. The Lord God rules over all peoples. Do not be hard-hearted. So first main point, the Lord God rules over all gods. The Lord God rules over all gods. There is one true God, the Lord God, and there are no other gods compared to him. The Lord God rules over all gods. Uh, it would help us a lot to pick up some context from last week's passage. Uh, here, this um, is this important reality from the end of 1 Samuel chapter 4. The Lord has gone into exile. The Lord has gone into exile. Now, that seems a little counterintuitive that the Lord God, who rules over all gods, would end up in exile. But that is exactly what we saw in the text that we studied last week. What has happened is that the Lord has borne the punishment that his people deserved. Uh, Israel sinned against God. They bowed down to other gods. They failed to obey God's law in a thousand ways in one. They were unfaithful to God. They were an evil people. They were led by evil leaders those who were supposed to lead the nation in sacrificial worship to God were instead defying God. The very acts that were supposed to demonstrate God's grace 
Instead, we're used to defy God's command. And so God brought judgment on the people of Israel. So in the text that we studied last week in 1 Samuel 4, God has raised up the Philistines to punish Israel. God gave the Philistines victory over Israel in battle. Uh, This was a punishment for Israel, but it was not as severe as it might have been. One, God used this moment to remove the evil leaders from Israel. Eli and his sons died on the same day. God removed their evil leaders to raise up more faithful leaders. Uh, Two, God had warned his people that if they disobeyed him, they would be sent into exile, scattered among the nations. But what we found last week was that instead of Israel going into exile, God went into exile for them. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of the Lord, has departed from the promised land and gone into exile. The Lord bore the punishment of his people for them. God had made a covenant with his people, which they had agreed with. God had promised them curses for unfaithfulness and disobedience. But when the time came, God bore the deepest punishment in himself. And of course, you can't consider God burying his people's punishment for any length of time without recognizing the ways that this foreshadows Jesus Christ. Jesus was exiled. He was crucified outside the camp. Jesus was forsaken by his father. And Jesus bore the punishment of his people. This picture of the glory of the Lord going into exile in 1 Samuel is a foreshadowing of the ultimate moment when God bore the punishment of his people, when Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners, when the Son of God bore God's wrath for sin, when God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of of God. The Lord God has gone into exile for his people, but while he is in exile, he demonstrates that he rules over all gods. Beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, we have the first example that the Lord God rules over all gods. 1 Samuel 5, beginning in verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Dagon bows before the Lord. Dagon bows before the Lord. The Philistines were syncretists, like many nations of that time, uh, like even Israel was really during this time. Uh, Syncretism is when you incorporate various elements of various religious beliefs into your own belief system and into your worship. 
And as I understand it, we know the Philistines were syncretists because Dagon was actually a god from the surrounding culture and they had adopted Dagon as their own. Dagon seems to have become their chief god. Well, in their view, since the Philistines had defeated Israel, that must mean that Dagon is greater than Israel's god. If Israel's god was greater, then Israel would have won. But since the Philistines won, that must mean Dagon is greater. But that doesn't mean that Israel's God is nothing in their view. Uh, after all, they know what this God of the Israelites did to the Egyptians and to their gods. Uh, Israel's God has power, just not as much power as Dagon. And since they've captured Israel's Ark, which represented Israel's God, they, they bring that Ark into Dagon's temple. Uh, so Israel's God can be like a household servant to Dagon. But as we see in our text, things do not work out the way they expect. The next morning, God begins revealing to the Philistines that they have misinterpreted the data. They believe that they won because their God is greater. They actually won because the Lord is greater. As the Philistines go to see their god in the morning, Dagon is no longer standing over the ark. No, Dagon has bowed down to the ark of the Lord. Dagon bows down to the Lord because the Lord is greater than Dagon. And the Philistines do not believe that the Lord is greater than Dagon. After all, he, Dagon just beat Israel's god in battle. So there must be some other reason that Dagon has fallen down before the ark. So they set Dagon back up in his place. The ark stays in its new place, subservient to Dagon, or so they think. And then they all go to bed. Take a look at the next verse, verse 4. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So first, Dagon bowed down before the Lord. Now Dagon is executed before the Lord. They get up in the morning, and things are even worse. This time, when Dagon fell, he fell apart. Not only has Dagon fallen before the Lord God, Dagon has been ritually executed. His head and hands cut off. The point of all of this is that the Lord is superior to Dagon. The Lord God rules over all gods. The Philistines have misunderstood the reality of what is taking place. The Lord is the one who gave Israel into their hands, not Dagon. The Lord is the one who is in authority, not Dagon. The Lord is not subservient to Dagon. Dagon has no, no power compared to the Lord. The Lord is revealing that he is greater than Dagon. In fact, he is greater than all. The Lord God rules over all gods. Of course, the question for us is, uh, 
What does all this have to do with us 3,000 years later? We are obviously way too sophisticated to believe in gods now. No one would bow down and worship an idol in our day. But is that really true? Uh, first, it is not true because there are actually still cultures and religions that do worship idols. People do bow down to shrines and images. Even some who claim to be Christians, people still bow down to idols. Second, and really even more important, idols do not have to be formal images that are made with hands. An idol or a god is really anything that we worship other than the Lord God. And we are more than capable of creating idols in our own hearts. In fact, we might even say that making idols is the thing that we are best at. We may not recognize our own idols, but we all have them. Just see how you respond when your idol gets taken away. Or when someone criticizes or disrespects your idol. You can figure out really quickly what your idol is just by how you respond when your idol doesn't have the prominence that you believe it deserves. For some people, work is their idol. They give their entire life to work. It's not necessarily about money, although it's often related. But they will sacrifice everything for the sake of their career, of moving up the corporate chain. For others, money is their idol. They'll do anything to make one more dollar. They'll lie to their customers. They'll cut every corner, whatever it takes to make one dollar more. For some, their idol is respect or sports or politics. Take your pick. You know, there are a lot of idols being put to death in our world right now. A lot of gods that are failing to deliver what they promised. And the question is, what will you do when your idol is executed? Will you be like the Philistines and just put your idol back together as soon as you can? Or will you turn from your idols to serve the living God. Times like today remind us of the foolishness of our idols. If your job was your idol and you lose your job, what do you trust in now? If money was your idol and you've lost all your savings or are about to lose all your savings, how will you respond? Suddenly, we find out that our little gods cannot really save. They were not actually able to save us before, but now our folly is more obvious. Times like this also reveal our idols. Maybe at this point in life, you have stored up a lot of resources. You've planned for retirement. You've saved for a rainy day. You're prepared for moments like this. Are you trusting in God or are you trusting in those things? Is your hope in your savings? How do you respond when your finances are compromised? Because that will reveal where your trust is. 
And if you do have resources, are you, are you able to use those resources for those who have a greater need than you? When we idolize money, once we have it saved up, we tend to think of it as our own. We forget that that is God's money, not my money. And so we become very stingy and very selfish with it. But instead, when we remember that the Lord God rules over all God, that frees us to use our money for God's purposes. God rules over our money rather than our money ruling over us. I think it's safe to say that most of our families will have more time at home together these next few weeks than ever before. This would be a really good time to remind your family of who your greatest God is. In fact, I think it is fair to say that you will remind your family of who your greatest God is. That is, no matter whether your greatest God is the Lord God, or money, or respect, or sports, or movies, or video games, or books, or whatever else your God might be, you will bow down to your idol right now, because that is what we do in times of trial. We show our idols, we highlight our, our idols, we reveal to the world our gods, because what we trust in and where we spend our time reveals those things. I expect that many of us face many fears right now. Uh, the stock market is as volatile as it has ever been in my lifetime, probably in any of our lifetimes. Jobs are uncertain. Small businesses are on the edge. Uh, we don't know how devastating the coronavirus might be. We don't know when the pandemic will end. But we serve a God who is above all gods. The Lord God is greater than anything we fear. He is the sovereign king of the entire universe, and we can rest in him. The Lord God rules over all gods. Second main point, the Lord God rules over all peoples. The Lord God rules over all peoples. The Philistines thought of the Lord as Israel's God, not as powerful as their God, Dagon, they were glad to bring the Ark of the Lord into their land as a token, but they didn't believe they needed to submit to the Lord God. They're about to find out that the Lord God rules over all peoples. And God reveals this by afflicting the cities of the Philistines uh, where they hold the Ark in exile. Uh, first, the Lord afflicts Ashdod. The Lord afflicts Ashdod. Look at verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Verse 7, And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. It is not just that the Philistine God takes a hit. The people are being afflicted as well. 
they have sinned by taking the Ark of the Covenant into their, their land, which, which they have no right to do. They have made it clear that they believe their God is greater than the Lord God. They believe their God has defeated the Lord God. And God is now punishing them for their sin and their defiance of him. The Lord God is demonstrating that he is, in fact, greater than all. And that they, the Philistines, should submit to him. God fills them with fear. He afflicts them with tumors. And their conclusion, the hand of the Lord is heavy against us and against our God. The Philistines recognize that the Lord God is against them. They recognize that the Lord is causing their trouble. But here's the problem. It does not change who they worship. They do not reject Dagon and turn and worship the Lord God. They don't acknowledge the Lord as God. By the way, the Philistine god Dagon is mentioned ten times in the first paragraph of chapter 5, once here in this section, and then never again in the entire book of 1 Samuel. He is really not that important. And neither is whatever little god you bow down to. Look at verse 8. Rather than repent, the Philistines just seek to remove the Lord God by sending the ark away. Verse 8, So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the Lord, excuse me, of the God of Israel there. By the way, this is what happens when you don't show up to the meeting. The Gath representative didn't show up and everyone said, hey, let's send the ark to Gath. Great idea. So now Ashdod is free, but Gath has the ark. And now we see that the Lord afflicts Gath, verse 9. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. The Philistines can't really solve the problem. All they do is just move the ark to a new place. Ashdod was afflicted before. Now Gath becomes the epicenter of the outbreak. Same problems as before. More tumors more terror. The Lord is hard on them. There's some kind of epidemic going on, but the epidemic rises or falls based on where the ark of God is. God can use whatever means he desires to accomplish his purposes. So the Philistines have another meeting. They still don't repent. This time the representative from Ekron doesn't show up, so now the ark is going to go to Ekron. And so the third section of our text reveals that the Lord afflicts Ekron. The Lord afflicts Ekron, verse 10. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. 
for there was a deathly panic through the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Same problem. Uh, here, at least, the people protest up front to move the ark somewhere else, uh, but the ark still stays there for a while. And the people are afflicted just like Ashdod and just like Gath before them. Tumors, terror, and the point of all of us is that the Lord God rules over all peoples. The Lord God rules over all peoples. It doesn't matter that the Philistines don't believe in the Lord. He is still their God. He is still their God because he is their creator. Certainly, we acknowledge he is not their God in the sense of having any personal relationship with them, but he is God. He is still the God of the universe. He is the God who spoke and creation sprung into being in order to obey his command. The Lord is God. The Lord created all that exists in the entire universe, visible and invisible, and everything and everyone who exists owes their loyalty to him. And the Philistines have refused to submit to God or to give him credit for the victory that he has given them. They refuse to worship him. They refuse to honor him. And so God punishes them for their sin. The Lord, rule, the Lord rules over all peoples, even those who refuse to honor and obey him. I am sure there are people with us this morning who are not Christians, and we are incredibly glad that you joined us. We hope that you would join us after this period of time ends and we can actually meet together. You're welcome to join us anytime. But I want to ask you, have you ever considered that the God of the universe has expectations of you? That you have responsibilities to God? That God requires that you would live a life of righteousness, always doing what is right. And this is not merely a general desire of God, but an expectation, something God demands of you. And consider this. The God of the universe is infinitely holy and righteous and just. One day he will judge all sin. All sin will be punished. And consider the life that you have lived and all the ways that you have sinned. Consider all the ways that you have acted against your own conscience. Your own conscience condemned you, but you did what you wanted anyway. Consider how little attention you have paid to honoring God in your life, the God who made you and granted life to you. Consider how little effort you have made to honor God and worship and obey him. How would a good judge respond to your ongoing sin against the perfect king of the universe? I propose to you that a good judge would act in exactly the way that the Bible reveals that God will act toward all those who have refused to submit to him. That a good judge would, would send you to punishment consistent with the crimes that you have committed. And since your crimes are against an infinitely good God, your punishment must likewise be infinite. 
And since you are not an infinite being, your judgment must be meted out in some other way. Specifically, your sin, your offenses against a good God, an infinite God, must be carried out for eternity. And that is exactly what God's word tells us will happen. All who have refused to submit to God will one day spend eternity in outer darkness, in the place of torment, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But God has not left us without hope. God has offered us a way of escape. God sent his son Jesus to bear the punishment in our place so that everyone who trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will not perish but have eternal life. And if you have not turned from your sin and trusted in God's son, you should trust in him even now. Christian, the Lord can bring affliction and the Lord can cure affliction. We ought to not to be careless about the real dangers that we face, but we should also trust God in the midst of them. There is nothing happening now that is outside God's control. There is no problem that is too big for God to handle. There is no trouble that God cannot preserve us from, and even when we die, we go to spend eternity with him. The Lord God rules over all peoples. Final main point, do not be hard-hearted. Do not be hard-hearted. First, we see in our text, we should not be hard-hearted like the Philistines. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1. This is a bit of an extended passage. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. Verse 3, they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must take images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Verse 7, Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off. Let it, let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. 
Verse 10, the men did so. They took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemeth along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping. They rejoiced to see it. Excuse me. They were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. They split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifice sacrifice, sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Verse 17, these are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. So the ark of God was in the land of the Philistines for seven months. The longer the ark is there, the more certain they become that the Lord is against them. But they do not repent. They do not turn to the Lord. In verse 6, the priests are telling the leaders not to be hard-hearted like the Egyptians. The Egyptians faced all the plagues that God sent on them, and they ignore them. Pharaoh still wouldn't let the people go until finally it was too late. And the priests are saying, don't be hard-hearted like the Egyptians. Don't, don't be like that. Don't be hard-hearted. And by the way, you can see how this event today becomes like a second exodus. And this time the ark is released from exile to go into the promised land. But back to the Philistines. The Philistines are not as hard-hearted as the Egyptians because they do send the ark back to Israel. But... They are hard-hearted like the, like the Egyptians in that they do not believe in God. Yes, they recognize the power of God, even over Dagon and them, and yet they do not repent and trust in him. They do not go to the Israelites and say, we acknowledge that we have sinned against the Lord. How should we respond to him? How can we serve and obey him? Help us know how we could honor the Lord. No, they don't do that. They don't turn to God in faith. They simply send the ark back to the land of Israel and hope that God will stop punishing them. And so they still have hard hearts. They still do not give God the honor that is due his name. And although they offer a guilt offering, it is one of their own imagination, uh, not one that is in line with how God had prescribed that he may be offered to. Uh, as you read this text, everything about how the Philistines are sending the ark back is designed to make it clear if it is the Lord God that is causing their distress. In verse 7 and following, they're trying to confirm without any doubt 
that this is really the Lord God acting. Uh, milk cows are not good cattle for pulling a cart. And they choose milk cows that have never had a yoke on them before. And they're to leave the calves at home so that the cows would want to go back to their calves. The situation is designed to make it most likely that the cows do anything but go to the land of Israel. And then if the cows do in fact take the ark back to Israel, then the Philistines can have confidence that this has been the hand of God. In fact, that is what happened. The cows take the ark straight back to Israel. The Philistines know it is the Lord, but they still do not repent and trust in him. Which is what so often happens with people who say they do not have enough evidence to believe in God. God gives them evidence, and the problem is not the evidence. The problem is hearts that are hard and refuse to trust in God. Do not be hard-hearted like the Philistines. But also, do not be hard-hearted like the Israelites. Don't be hard-hearted like the Israelites. We would hope that as the ark returns home, that unlike the Philistines, the Israelites would have hearts to please God. But that isn't what takes place in our text. Look at verse 19. And he, the Lord, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned to the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Well, as the ark arrives back in Israel in verse 13 of chapter 6, there's great rejoicing. Uh, you can imagine how excited they would be. The ark represents God's presence. The ark has gone into exile and symbolically with it the presence of the Lord. But now the presence of God has had an exodus from captivity and has returned to the promised land. And so we would expect this to be a time of great joy and worship. But while this event begins with great joy, it ends in sorrow. Many people are killed by the Lord. Now, there is a significant textual difficulty in verse 19. The number of men who died is either 70 or 50,070, which are slightly different numbers. It isn't clear which is more original, uh, but 50,070 is better attested in the manuscripts that we have. Uh, this is a significant loss of life. 70, bad too, but obviously we're talking about totally different scales of judgment. Uh, 
Whatever the correct number, what is clear is that the people have died at the hand of the Lord. It is the Lord who has taken their life. Well, why would these people be killed? These are the covenant people of God. It says in our text they were killed because they looked upon the ark. Any Israelite would know that they were not allowed to look at the ark. The place that the ark came back to uh, was the city of Levites. These are the priests. They are especially supposed to know how to treat the ark. They're supposed to know that it is supposed to travel covered. When it arrives at this place, no one is allowed to look at it. Only the high priest can look at the ark, and only once a year. But they're letting everyone look at it like it's nothing. God has chosen how he might be worshipped. God created, or had Israel create the ark as a symbol of his presence. And because the ark represented the presence of the Lord, no one was supposed to look at it. They knew they weren't supposed to look at it, and they looked at it anyway. That is the definition of a hard heart. To know what to do and not to do it. Or to know what not to do and to do it anyway. We can get bogged down in exactly why God set up worship and sacrifice as he did, uh, why he punished people as he did. But what is clear is that he revealed his desire to his people. And it is clear that they willfully rejected his commands. They knew what God said, and they defied him. And God's punishment is consistent with what he had revealed to them in the first place. The reason they are punished is because of their hard hearts that refuse to submit to him. This is why the ark went into exile in the first place, because of their hard hearts. And we see that for seven months, the ark was in exile, and throughout that entire time, they have not softened their hearts. They are still far from God. Do not be hard-hearted. Do not be hard-hearted like the Philistines. Do not be hard-hearted like the Israelites. There is only one positive example in our text today. The Philistines are not seeking to honor God. Uh, they want to get rid of his presence simply so they can send his trouble to other people. But they're not seeking to follow God. And on the other hand, we have the Israelites. In Israel, we're in the time of the judges and 1 Samuel. And as we have read and learned so far, there is no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No one is honoring God. In the language of Scripture, they're turning away from God to the right. They're turning away from God to the left. Anywhere but the path that is straight and true. And in our text, there's only one example of faithfulness, and we see it in verse 12. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. They went straight in the correct direction. They did not turn to the right. They did not turn to the left. We live in a world that is far from God. People like the Philistines who serve other gods over the Lord God. People like the Israelites in our text who ignore what God has commanded of them. 
And every one of us knows that our own hearts are often far from God. And what these things highlight is how far mankind has always been from God. God created us in his image to bear his image into the world and bring him glory. And we have turned away. We have turned away to the right. We have turned away to the left. And so in the fullness of time, God sent his own son to earth in fulfillment of his promises, in fulfillment of all the types and shadows of the Old Testament. Jesus was the son of God, fully God and fully man. Jesus is the only one who never turned to the right or to the left. Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law. He never turned. Jesus always did what is good and right and perfect. And despite living a life of perfect righteousness, Jesus was put to death. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for sin. On the cross, Jesus bore God's wrath for sin. He received the punishment for sin that people like you and I deserve. And he gave his people the perfect righteousness that belongs to him. For everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in him. Do not be hard-hearted. Trust in God. Trust in his son who is always faithful in all the ways that we fail. Jesus is our true hope. He is the only one, the only substitute, the only way that we can be right with God. Do not be hard-hearted. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you that even in the midst of a time that we're far from each other, that we can gather together around your word. We thank you for your word to us. Father, as we see these examples largely of unfaithfulness and unbelief, uh, we're reminded of our own hearts and our own selves. And we praise you that you sent your son for us to be the righteous one, to demonstrate what a life of full obedience to you looks like, and then to die in the place of sinners. Now, Father, during this time, we ask that you would turn hearts to you, that you would grant repentance, that you would grant faith in Jesus Christ that saves from sin. Now, Father, may we go from, uh, I guess we're not in a place together, and may we go about our days and weeks, and may we honor you. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.